We all know that uh, there's a lot of mention about our right to vote in the US Constitution, as well it should be, um, being the leader of the free world. And uh, I just wanted to remind everyone here that uh, while we do have the right to vote, and it's very important, it's the way we engage in the democracy, um, it's also very important that we count the votes correctly. And uh, it's not really the, the people don't decide the election unless the votes are counted correctly. So what we really need from a voting system is voter verifiability. And what that means is that I, as a voter, can check that my vote is in that box that's being counted. Okay? So some box containing ballots. Is my, my vote in there when the votes are being counted? Now, if you think about paper ballots and think about paper ballot boxes, you might think, is that ballot box in the river? Is it in the back of someone's trunk? Did it get forgotten in a garage? Or is that box that contains my vote there among those being counted? So really, as a voter, I'm interested in knowing that my vote is in there among those being counted. And that, roughly speaking, is one aspect of voter verifiability. The other aspect is that the voter and others, including those who didn't vote but other interested parties, such as officials who may not have voted but are interested in the, the election being carried out correctly, should be able to verify that the box of votes was counted correctly. So that is known as universal verifiability in the lingo. And it makes sense. It means that anyone can determine that the votes were counted correctly. And there's one very important aspect about voting that makes the problem hard. And that is that you don't want to reveal anyone's vote. That's very important. Because think about this. If everybody said who they voted for in a public space, you could count the votes, and you would know they were correct. So the real challenge here is because everyone's vote has to be private. So nobody's vote should be revealed. And what we really want and we don't have today, we don't have today, is that we shouldn't have to trust polling machines, and we shouldn't have to trust election officials. Just because voting is such an important activity that we should be guaranteed that our votes were counted correctly. We've seen lots of problems recently, most recently in Ohio. There were New Jersey machines that were recently tested by Andrew Apple of Princeton and found to be lacking. It's just it's something we hear all the time. Every time there's a, there's a determination of the security of voting machines, they are found to be lacking. Uh, every time we look at procedures more closely, we find that there are ways out. So in Ohio, for example, while looking at the paper audit trails, they found that officials were picking out uh, votes and choosing which votes to count so that they match the electronic count. So really, we, we, don't, we shouldn't have to trust any particular entity in the system. Now, that's a pretty difficult problem to solve. Uh, we also, in addition to that, in addition to these constructive results, what are known as constructive results, where you actually provide a solution, we also want to be able to compare voting systems. If I give you one voting system and another one, and you want to make a decision about which one to buy, you want to know, how do I compare them? How do I compare whether this one is better or worse with respect to integrity or privacy and so on? And we also want to be sure that this verifiability that we provide is accessible to those with disabilities. So if you have a voter who cannot see, for example, or a voter who has trouble marking a ballot, we want to make sure that this verifiability is accessible. 
So at GW, we've been working on all three problems. And the first one I'll describe our results in very quickly is in universal and voter verifiable voting systems. We've been working on this since 2004. And as Dean Darling mentioned earlier, we had the first non-commercial implementation of such a system known as citizen verified voting. And uh, most of the code in there was written by Ben Hosp. Uh, the implementation was uh, also influenced by Professor Simha, who's here. There's an inter-university system which was developed in collaboration with UMBC, the University of Ottawa, and the University of Waterloo, known as PunchScan, for which Stefan here wrote most of the code. It won the grand prize of the international NSF co-sponsored VOCOMP voting competition in 2007. And uh, there, were, there were voting systems from other countries in there as well. And it's also the first such system to be used in a binding election in 2007. The one we are going to demonstrate today is also an inter-university system developed in addition to the universities involved in PunchScan. We also have MIT and Newcastle University from UK. This system is known as Cantegrity, and it's the only voter verifiable system with the familiar optical scan user interface. So if you think about these, the previous systems, they all have the property of voter verifiability, but the user interface is a little unfamiliar to voters. So as to make the process very smooth and also to make it transparent to those voters who are not interested in voter verifiability, but just want to vote as they always have, this Scantegrity works with the optical scan ballot. The user interface in this case is the ballot. In addition to our work on voter verifiable voting systems, we've also been working on voting system properties. Are there mathematical limits to the amount of integrity and privacy you can provide? Can you look in a quantifiable way at these trade-offs? And how much privacy do current voting systems provide? We have an NSF grant on that uh, particular problem. We're also looking at accessible voter verifiability. To what extent can we make voter verifiability available to voters with disabilities? And I just wanted to announce that we will be having a mock election using Scantegrity, the system that's being demonstrated today. It's going to be an election for our international students on November 4th, so that they may also um, provide an opinion about which candidate they prefer. It will be held at the H Street Terrace, and there are handouts um, in, those, in those folders that were provided to you that give the address and more detail on that election. Today, we will talk about Scantegrity, and it's been developed in collaboration with David Schaum, who's the chief inventor of Scantegrity, and he's also the person who is considered to have invented the notion of cryptographic voting or secure electronic voting more than 25 years ago. He's also the founder of the International Association of Cryptologic Research. In association also, this has been developed with universities, UMBC, Ottawa, Waterloo, MIT, and Newcastle. And Stefan here, our doctoral student, has written a large fraction of the code. Stefan will describe the system. One of the problems that we have is how to make them uh, easy to use. And we looked at the problem and we said, you know, 55, uh, 56% of the votes that are going to be cast on November 4th this year are going to be on optical scan equipment. So can we do something about this large fraction of the votes and can we make those secure? And so in here, we have a classical optical scan ballot where the voter should just fill in the bubble next to the candidate, nothing more than that. So now, once we have this piece of paper, 
the voter is going to mark the ballot with a special pen. And the pen contains some in chemical ingredients that are going to react with the invisible ink that's printed inside the bubble. And two things will happen. First of all, the bubble will get dark. Now, we want this to happen because we want this ballot to be put in an optical scan machine so it can be detected. But another thing happens. So a, a confirmation code appears inside the bubble. So when you book a hotel room or a flight, you get the confirmation number for that. Now, when you vote for a candidate, you get the confirmation number for that particular vote. As simple as that. And then you take the confirmation number and you write it down on a piece of paper of your choice. Maybe it's on the bottom of the ballot so that it's easy for you. And then you separate the two and you put the ballot through the regular optical scan that gets into a ballot box. But you keep your code as a receipt. Now, these codes are randomly assigned to candidates. So on different ballots, there will be different codes assigned to the same candidate. So if somebody knows the confirmation code, it doesn't know how you voted. Just like if somebody knows the confirmation number of a flight, it doesn't essentially know where you're flying and so on, knowing only the confirmation number. So the great advantage of this scheme is that this is the old scanner. So everything that's in white is the old. So this is the old scanner. This is the old ballot box. Just take your existing optical scan equipment. Use that. Don't replace it. Don't buy new equipment. Don't recertify it. Just use the one you have with this new twist on the ballot. Now, what does that buy us? Well, the voter takes the receipt home. And at home, the voter can go to a website and type in the serial number of the ballot. In this example, it's 4711. So the voter goes to a web page, types 4711, any time after the election. And what do you think the voter should get? It should get the confirmation number. If the voter sees on the web page the confirmation number, it can be sure of a couple of things. First of all, it can be sure that the scanner scanned the ballot properly. Second of all, the voter can be sure that the ballots got from the polling place to some sort of central web server from which this web page is served. So you have that chain of custody verified. Now, you cannot, the voter cannot yet be sure that his vote, her vote, was properly counted. We have a mechanism for that too, and I'm going to go into a little bit of detail later on. But for now, what I want you to know is that we're not saying out with the old and in with the new. We're saying keep the old. Keep your regular optical scan. Keep the possibility of doing a manual recount. We know you election officials like that. But in addition, put an extra layer of security on top of your ballot without being intrusive in the old mechanism. And this additional layer is scientific and can be mathematically used to prove that all the votes have been counted as cost. So the voters can check that their vote is recorded as cost. And everybody can check that all the votes are counted as recorded. 
if we put those two together, we get counted as cost. Quite nice. So the current state of affairs is that the elections officials say, I promise to run this election fairly. Okay? And they come in front of maybe a committee or a judge, and they say that. And then you essentially have to trust them. Now, you may be one of those, and you trust yourself. So then you think the elections may be good. That's your opinion. Uh, how about making this promise mathematical? How about the election authority makes a promise for each possible candidate on each possible ballot? Now, that's a lot of promises to be made. But in the computer world, that's not that much, actually. So our implementation, for example, can handle um, 4 million ballots in 25 minutes. That's not that bad, and 4 million ballots is the largest county in the US. So if we make these promises mathematical, meaning that the election of authority will gonna make an individual promise per possible vote, then we can check some of the promises. And because nobody knows which promises the auditor is going to check, then there is a very good chance that were all the promises were fulfilled. And because you don't check all the promises, you get the privacy. You don't know how anybody voted. So the voters should be able to hold the officials to their promise. And when I, what I mean by that is they should be able to check the mathematical promises that they make. Now, the voters may not be able to do that because they don't know math. But we believe that enough voters will be interested in doing that check. And the voters are going to be able to perform the checks and balances for each vote. So first of all, I just explained that the voters go to, goes to a website, types in a serial number, and gets a confirmation number, a confirmation code. That is privacy preserving because anybody that sees the confirmation code does not know how the voter voted because those confirmation codes are, are, are randomly assigned to candidates. So privacy is no issue in, with this regard. But the voter is able to perform the checks and balances for each cost vote. So what we are doing, actually, our system is part of a bigger family of systems in which you are not checking the equipment that's used in the election. You are checking the election. You don't check the machines that are used and if, if the code on the machines is written correctly and runs correctly and doesn't have any bugs and so on, because that is virtually impossible. The, the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence. So if nobody found a bug in the code, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So how about you check each election and more precisely each vote in each election in such a way that you don't destroy privacy? Now this is a totally shift, a total paradigm shift from the way we're doing elections today. Today we're checking the equipment, we're certifying it, and 10 years we're using it. And then if you're the state of Maryland in 2010 you throw it out because you discover that someone just broke it. That doesn't work. So you have to get to a new paradigm. You have, you have to stop trusting the machines. You have to stop checking the machines and you need to start checking the election. Who needs to do that? Everybody. Everybody should be able to check that the votes were counted correctly. It doesn't 
matter who is voting, it matters who is counting the votes. But if everybody is counting the votes, that's good. If all of us, if everybody that's voting can count the votes, that means the election was fair. So you see that this new paradigm is so-called software independent, meaning that when the, when the election officials make those promises for each particular vote, they actually make some data available. It doesn't matter what software is used to process that data. Our method and the, the family of systems that our voting system is part of is going to check just the data. As long as the input data corresponds to the output data, it doesn't matter what software is in the middle. Because you are checking the input and the output, you are not checking the software. So this is software independent, but it's data dependent. And we, as we all know, the more data we have, the more we can check that the election went good. Now the trick is, is how do you construct that data? And how do you make the data public such that your election is still private, such that nobody knows how each voter voted? Well, there are mechanisms doing that. And we are implementing one of those. It's quite easy. It evolved from a family of systems that called verifiable mixedness that was also invented by David Shom some 30 years ago. So the method has been in the academic community and in the literature for quite a while. It's mature. It's, it's known to be safe. So we can essentially trust it. So as we said, the more data we have, the more we can check. And the elections officials should bring data to the public and to the voters so that they can check. And what we get, and this is my last slide, and what we get from that is a voting system that is secure by design. So by the way you design the data that you make public, you get a voting system that is secure by design. Now this is opposite to the way we have it right now, where the voting systems are believed to be secured by implementation. Now, I don't know anybody who still believes that, but we are checking the implementation of the voting system, whereas we know that the design on which the implementation is based on is flawed. The, ap the, evidence, the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence. If you don't know, if you didn't find a bug in there, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So if you look at the implementation, you can only find some bugs, but if you don't find any, that doesn't mean anything. Whereas if you have another paradigm in which the design of the voting system is secure, you don't really care about the implementation because you can hold the elections officials to their promise by the data they make public. Thank you. And I thought uh, we would end the presentation with uh, talk about uh, the future and where we are going from here. So um, we are working on getting Scantegrity to be used in public elections uh, in the US. We are actually pushing the envelope of voter verifiability and usability and accessibility. So we are still working and we continue to work on making our system more usable, uh, easier to use. We are looking at uh, verifiable techniques uh, for those 
with the difficulties with accessibility. And we are developing a performance evaluation framework for voting systems. So these, uh, these are the types of things that we are looking at here in uh, CS and Cs at GW. And uh, that's the talk. We thought we'd take questions on specifics about the voting system. We didn't want to go into details because uh, we didn't want to overwhelm you with information. But if you have a question about a specific detail or if you have an attack that you think you see, uh, then we'd be happy to discuss with you why the attack won't work. Um, and, and maybe that's a, that's a better way of uh, doing this. Yes? Do you know how much more this would cost than a typical pen and current ballot system uh, in order to generate the new ballots and, and have the special pens? So it's not that much more. So what I can tell you is that we did not run a cost estimate in the industrial traditional sense. So I cannot give you a precise answer, but from the preliminary numbers that we have, the pen costs 50 cents to buy and another 50 cents to put the ink in. So that's $1 per pen. To print, it's next to nothing. Uh, next to nothing additional on what's, what's currently used. So the invisible ink, it's uh, been around for hundreds of years since, since the age of, of ink, so that, that's no problem. So not that much. And, but, but what I want to emphasize is that the, the, the reduction in costs comes mainly from the fact that you don't need to throw away the equipment that you already have. Keep your scanners, keep your manuals, keep your procedures, keep your hand countability, keep that all and add this extra layer of security that doesn't cost that much. So it's, it's a very small marginal cost. It's also worth noting that it costs millions of dollars less than the, the touchscreen sheet. And that comes from the fact that you need only need one uh, optical scanner per pooling place, whereas in a touchscreen machine, you need one machine per booth. So if you have like you know 15 booths, that's already 15 times more if you think that the cost is the same per machine. You were talking about a paradigm shift and really putting the responsibility on the voter. Um, we can't even get voters to the polling <laughs> places. Um, do you think that the voters would take this extra initiative to, to check out and to make, I mean, it seems like the argument you're building is really dependent on voter, more voter participation. So um, actually, this works, and there, there have been papers on this. It works if you even have just a few voters check their votes, because essentially the voting system doesn't know which vote is going to be checked. So if it's going to try to mess with a few votes, like maybe, maybe three or five, that's not going to turn the election around, and maybe that won't be detected. But if you have a few voters check every precinct, and that's done at random, then if the voting system's trying to change 100, 200, 300 votes or something to turn that precinct around, then it's very highly likely that it'll be found even with a few voters checking. So you do, so if nobody checks, okay, so if nobody checks in the whole election, this doesn't help. It doesn't hurt, but it doesn't help. So yes, so some voters do need to be engaged, and it appears that there are some voters who are concerned. You could also have, uh, you know, instead of actually bothering to check this, you could leave it with an organization you trust. So, you know, there are, there are voter interest groups, so you could leave it with one of them. There are other, you could leave it with your candidate, because it doesn't reveal your vote. So you could leave it with the opposing candidate. And then just make sure that some of them get tested, you know. Um, 
maybe a news organization would want to help check them. So you know, there, there are various ways in which you could do it without putting an additional burden on the voter. And to those who are just not interested at all, they're like, oh, you know, and they just throw that away. To, to follow up on that, yes. yes, it is a paradigm shift. Because before, no voter could check. You have to have a badge. You have to have privilege in order just to get close to the polling place after the election is done. So the paradigm shift is that we empower the voters right now. Whatever we want to do it or not, we think that there, there will be enough voters, especially those who voted for the losing candidates, that will check this. And our mathematical, um, uh, our mathematics tells us that we need two to four percent of voters to check to get a 99% um, trust in the result. So 2 to 4% is not that much. I think you can find 2 to 4%. And the, another thing is that the closer the race, we believe that the more people will check. I, we believe that this is a natural thing. We don't know. But we believe that the closer the race, the more people will check. The other question I had was, you said you can use this on, on top of as another layer on the optical scan. I don't know which, where, where I pulled this figure from, but um, there, it was said that there was like a 10% failure. One of the papers that was written on voting machines said that there was a 10% failure on, I think it was a professor out of CM, Carnegie Mellon University, who had said that there was a 10% failure. Was that the scanner or the optical, or you don't know? Or I'm sorry, I don't know. Um, touch screen, I guess that was the touch screen. I don't know. But what, what, what about, I mean, you're, you're completely divorcing yourself from any failures in machines? Or no, what I'm, can, what, I, what I'm saying is that now you know if there's a failure. And now the voters know and they have proof that if something went bad, if they know, if they go to the website and they see that their code is not there, they say, hey, I know a code. So uh, also you, you were asking about, so we don't have the touch screen here at all. So the, the vote is being intermediate, intermediated by this ballot, by the paper ballot. So we have the benefits of paper, which a lot of voting activists have been asking for. And so there is a manual record of the votes. Now, if they don't get scanned in, if the scanner fails or something like that, we still know that these many or polling officials know that these votes haven't been scanned. Maybe take them to another scanner, maybe count them by hand or whatever. So, so there is that additional um, fallback in a paper-based system that doesn't exist in the electronic touchscreen touch systems, which 10% of them go bad, then, then you have quite a problem. I mean, I don't know what, right. you know what specifically we're talking about. But if it's, you know, we are divorcing ourselves from the touchscreen model in this, for this voting system. So it doesn't have that electronic interface with the, with the voter that a lot of voting activists have seen as a problem. And what, what was the percentage in this election that are going to be using? 56. 56%. 56%. According to Pew. You have a question? Yeah, I just wanted a clarification to make sure I understood the detail. When I go to the website, like with my codes, mm -hmm. and I can I type put in one at a time, or just the whole sequence? So you put in I, your uh, ballot number. Okay. So your your serial number, which is the part that's printed on your slip of paper, not what you wrote. Zero 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 seven one. Then I put in my. Yeah. So zero 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 seven one, and then it it gives you back. Maybe a list, if there were a list of races, it gives you a list of the numbers. Okay. That you, so if it's one race, it's one number, others, it gives you a list of your confirmation numbers. And if any of those are wrong, then you, you raise hell. <laughs> it's, it's your job. 
but it's basically telling me if my vote was counted. It's telling you if your vote is was there recorded. That's going to be okay. counted. Then thereafter, there's there's some math that goes on for the counting, and that can be verified by anybody who writes the code. So we describe completely what the math is, and then you can double check check the math. As many people as want to from all over the world can double check this math and say, yeah, you guys did the right job decoding the decoding all the all the numbers in there. Now we and after the decoding, we don't know anymore which number was yours. We don't want to know that. And so that's another special thing about the decoding. And that's where modern crypto comes into play, because it allows you to do this. And as Stefan men mentioned, people have been looking at it for about 28, also 27 years, and working on this. So that, that part of it, there's enough trust uh, in, the, in the crypto community and now going out into the software world. So there are, there are programmers who can write software to check this kind of map, and who have been doing it. And so, the idea is to have a number of such independent software de developers do it and check it, and maybe organizations like the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the League of Women Voters, maybe um, the, the candidates with their more advanced IT teams these days actually participate in the test. I just want. It's worth pointing out perhaps that in this post checking, in the counting that occurs afterwards, you can have any number of adversarial groups participate in that. You could have the Democrats say, you know, yeah. I don't trust anyone with this privacy business. We are going to step in there and we're going to encode along the way. And you could have another one, another group. You can have 15 groups. They can all do their own encryption and it'll pass through all of them with everyone having a say in obscuring uh, the voter from the actual vote. Uh, so the counting is both uh, verifiable in the sense of getting the count right but also in allowing anyone to have their stamp on the privacy part. I just want to add, so we can talk about how the mechanism behind how the, these promises work, because they're really simple. We can talk about it afterwards, one-on-one, -on -one if you want. Or you can pick up a copy of Security and Privacy, which has a nice explication, uh, explanation of it. It's the May-June number from 2008. Also from our websites are linked all the papers and the latest version is a really, really simple way of explaining that. And your website is? Uh, I think it's on the card, yes. Okay, there are a couple of websites you have um, not here. Well, there's Stefan at that, but... Um, it's okay. More questions? Yeah. So this is the this website is just cantegrity.org, okay. and it's on one of the sheets. And then there's also information at vote.cs, but that's much longer, so just go to scanbangrity.com. Or on your homepage or on my homepage, yes. all, all, all of the papers just, are linked. Just Google us and you get our web pages. <laughs> we prepared a couple of simple slides explaining what's done, how the counting is done. Um, so as, as uh, Stefan said, in Scantegrity, the promise is mathematical. And what is that promise? Well, that promise is that your confirmation code is in this box, in this virtual ballot box, and that it's going to be decoded to your vote, to the, to the person, the candidate next to whom you fill that circle, that uh, you vote. So that's the promise that's made. And the way it's carried out is in three steps. So voters will hold officials to their promises by first, they're going to check if their confirmation code is online. So is it in the ballot box? That's the first thing they check. And you saw that 
Stefan described how that works. Another way that they can hold officials to their promises, the question that you might have is, well, the confirmation code is out there, but how do I know it's going to decode to Republican? Or that's how I voted. Or how is it going to decode to the Green Party or the Democrats, or however I voted, and not go to the other person? So one thing you can do is you can actually fill up the ballot entirely and then go to polling official and say, I want to decode this ballot. Here are the numbers, decode them without telling them how you voted. And then you can check that the system actually decodes your choices and you have proof in your hand that this, should ha this is how it should decode because these are the squares you filled up. And so if it doesn't, and you don't have to fill up your squares the way you would vote, if it's an audit, you can, you can just do just randomly fill those ovals, and then go to a polling official and say, hey, I'm just going to give you the confirmation numbers because that's all I'm allowed to check on that website. And tell me, tell me how does it decode? And then the polling official runs it through the software and tells you how it decodes. And then you check, and you have your sheet out there, and then you can raise hell if it decodes something different from what's right there next to the oval you marked. So you have proof in your hand of how you voted. And then, I guess we've been, we've been saying this a lot, but uh, finally, anyone can also hold the officials to their promises. That is, finally, in the end, the software is going to do a set of decoding. And this can be checked by anybody who can write code to check that, that finally that got decoded correctly as well. Any other specific questions about it? Um, what are going to be the challenges for you? I'm going to ask you this again outside, but what are the challenges for you to um, to get this system implemented? Um, you said you're ready. working on it. It's, it's ready implemented. To do, it's, it's, I mean, ready to, to, put, to put it into to, uh, to practice. We just uh, need a county to say they want to use it. I know. Well, what are the challenges to getting that? that oh, that's, okay. that that's, okay. the, that's what you mean. Uh, well, so I think, uh, I think some of it is education. So there's that, that one element that is for voters to understand that this is possible, that you can actually get much more from the election system than you're getting now, and that there is a possibility. So it's not just blue sky and, uh, and air, but there is actually a system out there uh, that international students are going to get to use to check that their tally counted. I mean, the re regular voters won't know whether their tally is correct, but the international students voting in the mock election will know that their tally is correct. So I think one, one element is for, for voters to be aware that, yes, this is possible, and to, and to ask it and, and to expect it. The other one is for uh, election officials to understand that, that this, is not, this is not really about, um, about making it more difficult for them, because they might already have the optical scan system. And what this does is just build on it and doesn't have, require them to replace anything. It doesn't add too much to their cost. And it really improves the trust level, because it's not just a, a perception of trust that's improving, but it's real trust. It's the, the election is going to be proven to be correct. So, so for election officials to understand that there are also that there are constructive contributions that the computer science community can make to this problem, that there are ways in which we can help them run better elections and run them more correctly. And it's also useful for them not to have the trust burden on themselves, to always be, be the ones who are either doing it right or not doing it right. 
Now they have the math. Look, guys, the math works out. It's correct. So um, I think these are the two, uh, at least that I see. Maybe some yeah, I think one obstacle is that I don't know if you've heard the phrase, nobody got fired for buying IBM. Right? What does that mean? It means that you think about the burden of, uh, of technology selection uh, by county officials. They have a nice presentation from a national company. Here are our machines. And then we have a bunch of academics. You know, who, who are they going to go with? So until there's a breakout election, perhaps, in which some people are daring enough to adopt the new technology, probably that's how it's going to come. I mean, it's understandable. You have someone with a huge budget for responsible for a whole state. Are they going to risk it on a, an academic idea? They'd like to see you know, a blue chip company behind it, perhaps. So we don't know how it's going to come about or what the right way is. But these are obstacles that we face. Is one of the things you're thinking of, um, partnering with a um, so-called blue chip company, or you want to keep yourself out of the technology business totally because you're, you're moving to a new paradigm? <laughs> we don't know. Are you making an offer? <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, I think uh, a small, uh, a small uh, let's say, an intelligent county, you know, someone with, with voters who are, who are concerned about this, and county officials who are also engaged enough to know that, that you know, we can do this. Um, and I think that, that kind of county is going to, going to make the difference. I, I want to follow up on that. I just want to say that the first administrative entity that is going to adopt this, be it county, state, or country, anywhere in the world, is going to get this system for free and forever. So we're going to get a perpetual license to use it and any other improvements that come out of it. So this is our way of encouraging pioneering work in their domain. So we can put that on the radio, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right, yes. <laughs> the first one. Yes, the first county and then the first state and, you know, at every level. First count, first serve. But the obstacles are usually the, the traditional obstacles that any the transition from academia to, to industry is. But this is a particular challenging case because you have to uh, make business with the states and with the counties usually, which is public money. So The ones who first appreciated Google turned out to be right. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, we are around, so if you want to ask us one-on-one -on -one questions, you're very welcome. There's some food there. Sugar. Mm -hmm. Lots of sugar. That's right. Thank nice you. Presentation. Thank nice you. presentation. Thank you. Yeah. I'd like to acknowledge, actually I shouldn't end without acknowledging uh, the team, the voting team at GW, Professor Simha, doctoral students Stefan Popovenik and Den Haas. And I'd also like to acknowledge our uh, communications uh, at GW, I'd like to uh, acknowledge Michelle Sherard from Media Relations and her team, and I'd like to acknowledge Joanne Welsh at uh, CEDS, part of CEDS Communications. So thank you, everyone. And all of you for coming. Thank you.